So when Unitarian Universalists talk among ourselves about social justice, we all more or less know what we mean. Things should be more equal. No one should be hungry. The sick or the injured should be cared for. Everyone should have a chance to develop their talents, and so on. We're much better at making these kinds of lists than we are at explaining why this world we're envisioning is just. Where is the justice in social justice? Now, among ourselves, we usually don't need to answer that question because most people with UU values just feel it without explanation. You say, isn't it awful that in such a wealthy country, so many people have so little? And whoever you're talking to probably agrees, and the conversation goes on from there. Now, there's nothing wrong with that conversation. But if that's what we're expecting, then we'll be at a loss when we talk to people who frame justice differently. For example, in one of the 2012 presidential debates, a young man asked the Republican candidates, out of every dollar that I earn, how much do you think that I deserve to keep? And Ron Paul had a very simple and direct answer. He said, all of it. To Paul and to that young man and to many other Americans, that's only just. Why should anybody else get my money unless I decide to give it to them? And if that's how you think about justice, then when you hear that list of social justice goals, you'll wonder who's going to pay for all those goods and services. And in particular, is the government going to tax that young man and give his money to someone else? Just in the last few weeks, the Independent Institute over in Oakland published a collection of essays called Is Social Justice Just? Somehow that wound up advertised on my Facebook feed. I, I seem to be the target audience. And in the chapter, Biblical Christianity and Social Justice, Eric Schonsberg allowed that helping the poor on a voluntary basis is laudable if done well, but he cautioned that ethically, Welfare programs are troubling since they forcibly take money from one party and give it to someone else. Back in 2015, Fox News host Judge Andrew Napolitano saw in taxation a terrifying presumption that we don't really own our own property, but only the part of it that the government chooses not to take. His colleague Glenn Beck told his listeners, Look for the words social justice or economic justice on your church website, and if you find it, run as fast as you can. Now, when people respond to your social justice talk by grabbing their wallets and running away, it's tempting to write them off as selfish or hard-hearted. And some of them are, but many aren't. Some people who look at the world this way are quite generous. They give money away, they volunteer, they put themselves out for other people. But the model they put on this behavior isn't justice, it's charity. They do it out of, their goodness, out of the goodness of their hearts and not because they feel some obligation. And if voluntary contributions don't meet the need, which, face it, they never do, then the charity mindset sees a lack of personal virtue, not a flaw in the system. We need to do a better job of preaching generosity and not change the way our economy works. Now, ultimately, if our social justice work is going to succeed, we need to do more than just talk to each other and shake our heads at those who disagree. We need to critique that charity-based worldview and explain why it's inadequate in short, we need to explain what's just about social justice.
The beginning of that critique was in our opening words. It may be virtuous to give food to the poor, but we also need to ask why people are poor. Why can't everyone buy their own food, save for their own retirement, pay for their own health care, and educate their own children? And if they can't, what does that have to do with those of us who can? Why should we be taxed to provide for them? Those are challenging questions. And so right away you notice a difference between a charity mindset and a social justice mindset. Charity comes from the heart and often finds itself in conflict with more practical thinking. But social justice demands that head and heart work together. It's not enough to pity people in need. We also need to understand how poverty happens and how the system that creates inequality justifies itself. If the system that your reason supports leads to a, re a result that your compassion rejects, maybe you've made some bad assumptions. So social justice doesn't ask you to give up on thinking and follow your heart. Instead, it tells you to check your premises and think again. Now, whenever I try to rethink things, my instinct is to look back in time and read works a little closer to the era when the original assumptions were made. And in this case, there's a second reason to do that, because the depth of the American social justice tradition is not well appreciated. Too often, critics paint social justice thinking as a bunch of recent woke notions that would have appalled America's founders. But in fact, the American social justice tradition traces back at least as far as the federal era to a little book called Agrarian Justice that Thomas Paine published in 1797. Now in school you probably learned that Paine wrote the Revolutionary War pamphlet Common Sense. He penned the more memorable line, these are the times that try men's souls, and he proclaimed the late 18th century to be the age of reason. But you probably didn't learn that he was more than just an American patriot. Paine was an international revolutionary. After American independence, Paine went to England to promote his ideas there. And when that got him into hot water, he joined his friend Lafayette in Paris and was elected to the National Convention of the New French Republic. Subsequently, the French Revolution uh, descended into the reign of terror, and Paine did not go along with it. So he was arrested, mistreated, and only a bureaucratic error delayed his execution long enough for Robespierre to fall. After the new government released him from prison, the American ambassador in Paris, James Monroe, took Paine in and nursed him back to health. And it was during his recovery that he wrote Agrarian Justice. Agrarian justice is addressed to the English and proposes that when each young adult comes of age, the government should give him or her, and I'm not updating here, gender equality is part of the proposal, give him or her a stake of capital to get a start in life. And also those who survive to old age should get a pension. And all this should be funded by an inheritance tax on land. Payne writes, it is justice and not charity that is the principle of this plan. In his mind, young adults were entitled to a stake in the economy, and the rationale for his tax would strike fear into the heart of Judge Napolitano. Paine believed that we don't really entirely own our property, and that all property comes entailed with obligations to others.
So Paine was not trying to appeal to people's compassion and preach personal generosity. He was challenging their fundamental assumptions about one of the most basic concepts of 18th century economics, landed property. When people have lived under a property system their entire lives, as the English had then and we have now, they tend to take it for granted. But Paine did not take the property system for granted because he had seen the example of the Native Americans. He writes, the life of an Indian is a continual holiday compared to the poor of Europe. And on the other hand, it appears to be abject when compared to the rich. Civilization, therefore, or that which is so called, has operated in two ways. To make one part of society more affluent and the other more wretched than would have been the lot of either in a natural state. But isn't European civilization supposed to be a good thing? Paine agrees that it should be. He writes, the first principle of civilization ought to have been and ought still to be, that the condition of every person born into the world after a state of civilization commences ought not to be worse than if he had been born before that period. Now that's a fine sentiment to feel in our hearts, but if our heads are gonna come along for this trip, we need to understand why things didn't turn out that way. Was there some reason why the poor had to be wretched, or did European civilization make some early mistake that led to that result? Paine says there was a mistake, and it has to do with how we invented the concept of property. Now let me stop here for a minute because I've just snuck in a radical notion. Property is a human invention. Today, a lot of people, like most of the authors in Is, is Social Justice Just?, write about property as if it were natural, something that exists prior to all societies or governments. But that's just not true. Paine lampoons this belief using religious language. The creator of the earth, he says, did not open a land office from which the first title deed should issue. <laughs> he might also have pointed to the animal world because as we saw in the story, nothing remotely like property exists in nature. Animals have territory, which is a very different concept. Similarly, land as private property is not a natural idea at all. Paine writes, the earth in its natural uncultivated state was and ever would have continued to be the common property of the human race. He capitalizes that, the common property of the human race. In that state, every man would have been born to property. He would have been the joint life proprietor with the rest in the property of the soil and in all its natural productions, vegetable and animal. Now, being a practical man, Paine recognized that modern agriculture would not work on those terms because it requires a long investment of effort before you see any reward. You have to clear the land and dig out the rocks. Each year you have to plow and plant and fertilize and weed. And why would you do all that if in the end you had no more right than anyone else to gather the harvest? So Payne believed that it was right and just for the difference in value between cultivated and uncultivated land to be private property. Not the land itself, the difference in value between cultivated and uncultivated land. And here he locates the original mistake, the original sin for which the poor pay the price. Rather than just let people own the value of their improvements, we created a system in which they own the land itself. 
We created a system in which the earth is owned, not in common by all humanity, but only by people who have their names on deeds. So while a hungry Iroquois or Algonquin could go hunt in the tribal forest or fish in the tribal pond, a hungry Englishman could not because those natural resources belonged to someone else. In short, the poor of Europe were worse off than the Native Americans, not because God created them that way and not because they were lazy or stupid, but because they had been disinherited. Their share of the common inheritance of humankind had been usurped. Paine was just talking about land, but it's easy to see how his ideas extend to other areas. No one would dig a mine or drill a well if they had no claim on the resulting iron or gold or oil. But some part of that output also has to belong to the common inheritance. It can't all be private property. And consider not just our physical inheritance, but our cultural inheritance as well. You should never trust a speaker who doesn't apply his ideas to himself. So look at me. I'm a writer. I work in words, and sometimes I sell my words. Somebody handed me a check just this morning. <laughs> but I did not invent the English language. I inherited language, just like all of you did. And while I have some claim to the ideas in this talk, large parts of them come from Thomas Paine and from John Paul II and other benefactors in our cultural legacy. So if there is value in my words, I didn't create that value out of nothing. Part of that value should belong to me, but part rightfully should return to the common inheritance. The same is true for the Hank Reardons of the world, the inventors, the researchers, and entrepreneurs. They do indeed create value, but as Newton put it, they stand on the shoulders of giants. The legacy of the, those giants should belong to everyone. In short, I'm endorsing that idea that so scared Judge Napolitano. We really don't own what we own free and clear with no obligations. And to that young man at the presidential debate, I would say you earned that dollar by using the common inheritance. Some part of it needs to go back. We all owe a debt to the common inheritance because everything we make relies on the resources of the earth and the tools that have been passed down to us. Paying our debt to the common inheritance, and particularly to those whose share of that inheritance has been usurped, is the justice in social justice. But the charity mindset refuses to recognize that debt. It accepts, without question or objection, disinheriting millions or even billions of people from the common legacy. Once you've done that, they have no rightful claim on anything beyond what the rest of us choose to give. Any tax collector demanding money to help them is just a well-intentioned thief. But if you do accept that everyone is entitled to a share of the common inheritance, how should they collect it? Payne, as I said, was a practical man. So he recognizes that he can't even calculate the rents and royalties that each person has coming, much less collect and distribute them. Instead, he proposes that everyone be offered a deal in payment for your share of the common inheritance and your acceptance that you were born into a world where virtually everything of value was already claimed by someone else, we'll offer you this. When you reach adulthood, we'll give you a stake. Some bit of capital will get you started in life. 
And if you make it to an age where you can't reasonably expect to work anymore, then we'll give you a pension. That's how he proposes to make good on the principle that civilization ought to benefit everyone and not just some at the expense of others. Now notice that Paine does not propose a dole or make work projects that give everyone a meaningless job. His proposal is much more radical than that. The poor should be capitalized. Everyone should have a stake, a chance to launch themselves into the middle of the economy rather than start at the bottom. Now in Paine's day, that didn't take much. He writes, when a young couple begin in the world, the difference is exceedingly great whether they, be, they begin with nothing or with 15 pounds apiece. With this aid, they could buy a cow and implements to cultivate a few acres of land, and instead of becoming burdens upon society, would be put in the way of becoming useful and profitable citizens. Now, a similar idea has popped up in many other guises. In biblical times, capital meant land. So the prophet Micah envisioned every family sitting under their own vines and fig trees. Pope John Paul II pictured the ideal economy as a great workbench where we all have access to the tools we need to be productive. Launching yourself into today's economy may, may be more complicated than in Payne's day, but the value of the common inheritance has grown. Exactly what deal it makes sense to offer now in lieu of the inheritance that we still can't deliver is a topic for another day, but certainly education must be part of it and childhood nutrition. In general, people should be freed from poverty traps, from situations in which their short-term survival depends upon doing things that harm their long-term prospects. Because no heir to a rich inheritance should ever have to eat the seed corn. The Pope's image goes a long way towards helping us evaluate the adequacy of any proposal. Everyone is entitled to a seat at the great workbench, one that belongs to them by right and does not depend on anyone's approval or generosity. Now, even if we had such a program, if we had a way to deliver to each and every person fair compensation for their share of the common inheritance, things could still go wrong. A prodigal son might waste his inheritance. Unlucky people might lose theirs to accident or illness. Some people's abilities might be so limited that no tools we can provide will make them productive. There would, in other words, still be occasions for charity. But that's not where we are now. In the world we live in today, people struggle because the common inheritance has been usurped by other people who believe that what is theirs is theirs and they owe no one for its use, who believe that only landowners are beneficiaries of the creation, that businessmen and entrepreneurs are the sole heirs of technological progress, that only the educated rightfully inherit our cultural legacy. After the inheritance or some fair compensation for it has been delivered to all people, then charity might be enough. But until then, we should never stop demanding justice.